Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bunker Daily, the little heirloom cherry tomato sibling to Wednesday's hormone-boosted beefsteak podcast. I am your host, Alex Andreu. A few centuries ago, today's guest would have found himself on a ducking stool for being obviously possessed and speaking in tongues, but standards in this country have slipped since then, and he finds himself instead the country's most celebrated impressionist. Welcome, Rory Bremner. Hi, Alex. Lovely to speak to you. What an introduction. That's the most erudite by far. <laughs> How are you, darling man? I'm fine. I'm very, very well. Very lucky. We're kind of out in the country and have been spared, except um, for a lovely Tim Brooke Taylor, who uh, we lost in uh, the April weekend, was our coronavirus uh, victim. We toured in January. Um, and so that was the closest and the most tragic that it got. We've, uh, by contrast, we've been pretty lucky. And it's just going on forever and ever, isn't it? It's uh, Yeah, I, I think... We just have to learn to live with it um, now. We do. Well, my daughter, um, she does a lot of, um, she does some international riding and these horse events. There was an organiser, you may have remembered two years ago, the Liverpool Horse Show uh, was terminated when the the car park caught fire. There was a massive fire in the car park and they had to evacuate everybody and the horses. And then last year, um, it was flooded out because it had torrential rain and they had to cancel the thing because of floods. And so we said, well, you've had the fire, you've had the floods. Ah, It'll be the plague next. (laughs) (laughs) what are the chances you know i mean but it is it's uh we seem to be racking up these once in a thousand year events or indeed once in a hundred year events they seem to be coming more rapidly you know bank crashes and uh you know and plagues and things but it is uh, it's it's all part of the box set life that we're leading at the moment where you think who is writing this and uh, they're (laughs) ramping it up i mean when when boris went into intensive care you thought they have really jumped the shark uh, <laughs> and every yeah. time you think now is the season finale no this was the season finale so johnson let us let us begin with johnson so before he became pm uh, popular wisdom had him down as a, a good communicator socially liberal a great orator and charming when he wanted to but also there was a fear that he was an immoral blagger with no interest in detail it turns out he is indeed an immoral blagger with no interest in detail, but also an awful communicator with autocratic tendencies and about as charming as having your head dipped in concrete. Yeah, well, that, that is, the, if I, that is the, the, the best introduction that I, I could possibly have. I, I, <laughs> I, I, you, are, you, are, you are spot on. Uh, my friend, uh, with your with your with your with your analysis, yes, I mean that does chime in. I mean, and I don't think it's a coincidence that you know the three countries at the very top of the list, um, uh, Britain and America and Brazil, have got these three extraordinary um, sort of uh, narcissistic charlatans uh, in charge. And I think you know he has been found out. I think um, in this, I think he's currently, um, as we speak, uh, what are we now? It's exam season, and he's currently going around Whitehall saying, "Oh, look, I mean, you know, I mean." This is, is there any chance that we could be judged on last year's results? I mean, you look at how many, how many, how many corona, how many corona cases last year? I mean, there were uh, no, none, none whatsoever. So I think, I think if we take those into consideration, we could. Uh, well, I mean, we can get that average down to something. Like <laughs> yes, they just moderated themselves we, down. We could moderate with off quals assistance. <laughs> we can get down to under twenty five thousand. But I think, as it is, uh, Alex, I think you're very unfair. As you know, we are 
well beating. We are well beating. Uh, we have a, a well beating recession. Uh, <laughs> greatest uh, GDP uh, fall in the developed world. I think we are still the developed world, uh, and indeed the, the <laughs> highest, highest per capita fatality. So I think I think there is still a case for British exceptionalism. Although that has been a main casualty, we were just chatting about this, weren't we? This uh, that Boris talks about the great British common sense, and that common sense will get us through this. And then the next day, you see a headline in the Sun going on on Twitter featuring a man who's just shoved six cream eggs up his ass, uh, <laughs> and you think, well, or you look at the sort of scenes on board. I'm sure he did so with every precaution. I uh, know, yes, indeed. And um, or you look at Bournemouth, and I mean, uh, Boris likes to think of himself as, as Churchill, and uh, well, I mean, indeed, but but. I need now. Do we when when Churchill said we will fight them on the beaches? Uh, I think it is very apparent if you look at Bournemouth or Brighton, we no longer need the Germans. We are more than capable uh, of, of fighting ourselves, uh, indeed, on on the beaches. And, and I think it is it is it is a great a great thing. We are still a great uh, country. And people say, as a government, we've been uh, we've been uh, behind the curve. Uh, I, I would say no, no. We have been we have we have been all over the place. We've been all whether it's been on lockdown or testing or PPE or or care homes or school meals or quarantine. Uh, far from being absent, we've been all over the place. <laughs> what What do you think? Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a strange function of our times that that uh, people who we used to think as awful uh, have become heroes of the age. What oh. do you think the more the more traditional? Conservatives, you know, the elder statesmen, both on the Eurosceptic side, like William Hague, and and the pro EU camps, like Kenneth Clark. What must they make of it all now? Well, it's, and even John Major, of course. I mean, who sort of even before this, during the sort of the Brexit time, and and Gordon Brown and and Tony Blair, who seems to have been redeemed in some way. I mean, he, he, I remember he, I did an interview with him in Dubai a couple of years ago. And I said, do you regret the fact that Iraq uh, means that people just don't listen to you at a time when, you know, arguably, you know, you, you've got much more to say over Europe and and globalization, what's happening now? And he said, yeah, I, I you know, he, he agreed that that was, that was the case. And um, I said, do you think the problems have got bigger or the politicians have got smaller? And he said, well, you know, actually, you know, I can tell you, it's a lot harder to do the job than it is, you know, to actually just commentate on it. But I miss these characters. Um, I miss I miss the William Hags, of course, because, you know, when I, I was foreign secretary, when David Cameron was the prime minister, we had a prime minister uh, who thought that Somalia uh, was a wine waiter. Um, <laughs> so I miss them as characters. And I mean, particularly that Labour government of, that came in in 1997. I mean, they were kind of ready formed. You had, we knew who Gordon Brown was, uh, Tony Blair, John Prescott, of course, um, uh, David David Blunkett, um, uh, Peter Mandelson, of course, Alex, and I still know where you live. Let me tell you that right now. <laughs> Robin, Robin Cook, who was an outstanding foreign secretary before he resigned on an issue of principle over the Iraq war. Um, and, you know, you look at the cabinet now, and when you see these coronavirus briefings, they do increasingly look like those task managers that you get on The Apprentice. That yeah. just, just look rather apologetic with the dogs eating my homework sort of attitude. And you just expect uh, Alan Sugar to say, you haven't got a bloody clue. I mean, Gavin Williamson especially looks like oh, the, the local manager of the DFS oh, sort yeah. of wandered by accident into the briefing room and someone just shoved a, a, 
shoved a, a briefing paper in his hand and said, you're on. Well, totally. I mean, it's, uh, but it's extraordinary how that cabinet purge that, that, that Boris Johnson had. I mean, I think there were, there are conservative ministers who were former ministers of some merit and some quality, you know, uh, um, and they were swept aside uh, in favour of, uh, an, you know, because it had to be a Brexit cabinet. Um, and I think it's just, you know, it's, you would, you would expect me to say, say this, but it is, it's remarkably if you talk about a cabinet of all the talents, it, this is the very opposite. And I do think, you know, that it, you're absolutely right. That Boris, Boris, I don't think of him as a leader. I think of him as a cheerleader. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I still have t- trouble coming to terms with the phrase, you know, Prime Minister Boris Johnson. It's kind of up there with maths teacher Diane Abbott or social worker Jacob Rees-Mogg as being kind of almost sort of, um, oxymoronic. It's not the skill. It's not his skill set. His skill set was is bluster and bombast and, yeah. and the, this sort of the demagoguery. And when you're dealing with a pandemic, you know, you look at Angela Merkel, for example, and she is so scientific. You know, she knows. He says, hey, if we don't act before uh, it, on this now, the the figure in October, the R figure will be uh, 1.8. If we wait until November, it will be 1.95. And you think, I mean, the only R factor that Boris is aware of is is, uh, is he personally, because uh, I think he, he uh, I am now the father, Alex, of, uh, is, it, is it six? Six or seven? <laughs> I've, yeah, I've got a personal R of, of six. Uh, I think that, and that's, that's, all, that's the ones we know about. In fact, in fact indeed, Alex, I am now, uh, we have opened a track and trace uh, system. Uh, if you came into contact with me uh, in, the, in the last uh, 10 years and may be pregnant, uh, there is a track and trace form. <laughs> Uh, that you can you can fill in, um, but your serious point, yeah, it's just not the same skill set, and so your underlying point that sometimes the more boring, uh, prosaic, uh, forensic politicians are more effective. And you look at, uh, as I say, Merkel or Jacinta Ardern in in New Zealand. Now they're uh, New Zealand, a very different country, of course, granted, but you know, there's something about. The, uh, back to John Major about the decent, quiet man trying to do the best that he can, and he, he's he Major himself was working in almost impossible situ- circumstances. I think Marina Hyde uh, wrote in a column something that has stuck with me that Boris Johnson wants to have been prime minister, but he doesn't particularly want to be prime minister. Beautifully put. Really, really well put. There's, I think Rebecca um, Rebecca Front, Front described this, said that we've got a government at the moment that's a bit, it's, 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 it's really, it's more like a clown car. <laughs> and that image, you know, you know, when the, the curtain yes. opens and, and the car comes in with the horns and the wheels falling off, and, and you know, it would in other circumstances be comic, but I mean, in these particular circumstances, they're particularly tragic. And and weirdly, isn't it how extraordinary how strengths and weaknesses are interchangeable? Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned before about Boris's social liberalism, the sort of libertarian part of that, if you can, if I consider. Swap horses, as it were, meant that you know he he didn't like to tell people what to do, but actually an early lockdown was probably what he needed to tell people to do, and he mm. fought it 
sort of tooth and nail because he just he doesn't like to tell people what to do because basically maybe he, he doesn't like the unpopularity. Um, so we lost exactly. that moment. And, as a and the responsibility because if you actually tell, tell people what to do, then you're responsible for what happens next. And indeed, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I've been I've been joking, but behind them is is that serious point of, of, of Boris's character. I mean, Heathcote, Heathcote Williams wrote a brilliant book uh, before he died. Uh, actually, it would have been hard to write it after he died, I suppose. But um, he died a couple of years ago. Um, called uh, uh, Boris, um, I think it was the Beast of Brexit: A Study in Depravity, and uh, it's a remarkable handbook as to the kind of character that we were dealing with um, in Boris. But uh, you know, they have a similar character over the Atlantic, and uh, you know, he. I mean, that's been an extraordinary. Yeah, t- talk, um, talking of clown cars, yeah. Um, the U.S. elections are coming up. I mean, obviously, the world would heave a sigh of relief if Trump was ousted. But as an impressionist, is there a little corner of your soul that wishes oh, him to stay? Be honest. The corner. There's a suite of rooms in my soul. Um, <laughs> But we have tremendous numbers. Don't forget, Alex. We have tremendous numbers on the corona. On the corona, we've got. I think we got the highest numbers in the world, over five million cases. And you know, we're, we're doing something right. Has to be said. And um, you know, because I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for, Donald J. Trump. That's the J, J stands for genius. Um, so he is. I mean, he is one of the greatest gifts that uh, impressionists have had. And the internet is full of you know, Trump memes and all the rest of it. But I mean. Back to under the, the underlying reality. I mean, this is somebody who's it, it's not uncommon for him to tweet a hundred times in twenty four hours. Which you think, what is he doing? You know, with the rest of his. Life? I often think this is that if the Martians landed tomorrow and said, "Take me to your leader," in many play, cases you'd be so embarrassed you'd just you'd be trying to change the subject because we ended up um, with this, uh, you know, an extraordinary. And, but it, again, it has an effect in America. They have a. There's a body that studies uh, the uh, poisonings. Um, and in the week or two after uh, Donald Trump suggested, you know, maybe you could inject some kind of, you know, like a disinfectant. And then he looked at his medical people and they were looking anywhere but him, you know, <laughs> they were, um, wanting the world, the floor to swallow them up. But in, in the two weeks following his suggestion that you should inject yourself with disinfectant, um, poisonings actually doubled, nearly doubled in America. So there is a real effect. Uh, and I, I think he's just, I would say that he's washed his hands of the pandemic, but that would be too, too, almost too on message um, as, a, as a metaphor. He, mm. He's just, it's, he's not interested. He keeps saying it'll disappear, it'll disappear. And when somebody sort of said, well, it will take years, he's, yeah, but I'm, I'm right. He did say at one stage, he said, this is an absolute Trump quote. He said, one thing that the pandemic has taught us is, is that I was right. Uh, and there it is. He said, "You know, people now they say uh, you you could uh, you should you should and and I say and they, they now now they agree with me and that that goes for medicine and and the rest of it. Um, and you just can't. He's a rather. I often think of him as the, like a cat that turns up at Crofts, <laughs> and and people say, well, hang on, this is this is you can't come in. This is a dog show.' And he says, so." I'm here yeah. now. I'm here now. What are you going to do about it? And the extraordinary thing in both Trump and Boris is that their egregiousness becomes our problem. Because yes, West- because they, they turned up at Crafts and won it. 
And absolutely, they, they did. And, you know, behind both, as I say, I mean, I feel that I have to, because my USB is doing voices and, and, and comedy, for those who tuning in who didn't know. And, uh, and but, but there is a serious point behind it, which, I, you know, I, I think that they are, they're not, it's not the skill set. And it, I, I still find it extraordinary that across the world you have Trump and you have uh, Boris and you have Erdogan and you have Duterte and you have Bolsonaro and you have Orban. And the seriousness behind this, of course, is what are they? They're all strong demagogue leaders who are busily undermining and, and dismantling many of those systems like the United Nations and the European Union and NATO that were put in place to undo the damage done by the last generation. Mm strong men so i think that's you know for all that i'm being facetious i think um i i kind of see this thing and, and boy was was you know was it fukuyama fukuyama who said uh you know who had this belief that it was the end of history and that we'd arrived at some kind of benign settlement as i understand it. yeah 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 we would have this kind of liberal uh democratic uh settled position and and boy has that taken a tumble On Brexit, now, you know, you've spent a lifetime observing politicians, so you've got pretty good instincts. Um, what's the feeling in your water? Are we heading for a deal, no deal, paper-thin deal, or an extension? Well, my, <laughs> I, I think it's what what they want. I mean, there was a rumour, I read somewhere the other day, that even, even Boris Johnson is thinking he wished he'd written that sent in that other article where he was pro-Remain because uh, I think you and I thought very similarly the morning after the Brexit vote when you saw the pictures of Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, they were, you know, you remember the image, they were the the producers, wasn't it? Yes, yes. There they were, these two who thought that springtime for Hitler was going to be the most fantastic fate. And it turns out a huge success. So that was, you know, that was actually, yes, that's the end of, uh, that was the season finale of one of my box sets. (laughs) I I believe the line was, you ruined my life, you lousy fruit. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I wonder, I mean, I still think at some level, Boris must have thought, oh, but of course, the great thing, and people say, oh, well, they were lies on either side. But the thing about it is that, and I, I don't believe that that was entire, I think there were more lies on one side than the other. But the thing is that it's it's only the victor's lies that are going to get found out, isn't it? Mm, mm. Um, and I think, you know, but you see that it's it, this is the danger. I think, I don't know if, if, if you can make a good case for ideology, but ideology is so totally taken over the Conservative Party, this particular Eurosceptic ideology, that I think that they really want, they, they've got their 80-seat majority. The, 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 the ideology, so they, I think they want to have, they, they, they've got this majority. They, I think they'd be perfectly happy to have no deal. But again, they haven't really thought out the consequences of that. Where I am on Brexit is I'm, I'm a great sport lover, uh, and you and I have sat in pr- meetings where Andy Zaltzman has been obsessed. Yes, with yes, yes. Watching cricket while we're supposed to be writing comedy, and he's brilliant at both. There is this principle that when the game is held up for some reason, there's a thing called extra time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that if we look at the pandemic striking in February, March, and from February, March through to where we are now. It, it's been pretty impossible to concentrate on on Brexit and, and to negotiations at the same time as deal with a, uh, a pandemic. Uh, so I would say add on extra time. Uh, 
after uh, after the end of this year, there should be a period of six months extra time to allow negotiations to be taken to be, to take place. I think, I mean, there is a case for saying that actually it probably suits the hard Brexiteers that we are running towards this the end, this hard deal, no deal rather, this no deal Brexit. Um, and it, people aren't really looking because our attentions are diverted by the pandemic. On our sector, the you know the arts and entertainment or the lovey industry, as the mayor oh. would call it, um, I I vacillate between being quite optimistic and thinking that storytelling is such a basic human need for performer and audience alike that it is irrepressible. But then I see so many venues in trouble and I become terrified that we will reset to a sort of medieval model where we have to start again by doing passion plays in town squares. Um, what, what's, your, what's your feeling? Uh, well, I think you're by, right in both. I mean, it, it, storytelling will, of course, absolutely. Uh, empirically, it is, it's, it is the most powerful thing we have uh, in many cases you know and, but the, the the element that 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 has gone is is the audience is people being together in a close closed space people crowds gathering uh, and yes that is the that's the, the key of our industry and the fact that as people have said that no two nights in the theater are, are the same you know you've got this wonderful uh, chemistry between an audience and the performer and you need your audience if you say you have a socially distanced audience you know that theater will look uh, it will transform the dynamic from a comedian's point of view it'll yeah. be a half full theater no matter even if they're laughing loudly it will still be a half full theater and before the pandemic we were doing I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. And the theatres have not, not played in theatres that big for a while. It was 1,800, 2,000-seat theatres, you know, rolling with laughter. And that sound and that energy and that shared uh, humour. And and, and there's something about the physical huddling together, isn't there? You know. But also, I was talking to somebody, and this is so, I mean, as far as the theatre thing is concerned, I mean, I live not far from Sirencester, and they've got a wonderful... Um, sort of independent theatre there called, called The Barn. They were gearing up to a very good year coming into the next year. They're hoping to, you know, have a turnover of about a million pounds. And that, of course, disappeared overnight. But they had, they'd done a lot of preparation. They moved, they did a lot of things online. And they've just done, a, they're now doing a Barn Fest summer festival outside socially distanced. And, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've been very good at, um, they've been very proactive. Um, so you know, but not all theatres necessarily are, have been able to uh, do. Ha- not all theatres have outside space in mm. the way that the barn in Sirencester does, um, and you know they're not always. They they may not have come out of the blocks as, as fast. But I was just talking about an hour ago to somebody in the events industry because you know another part of what I do a lot is you know the corporates and the award ceremonies, yeah, and yeah, yeah. conferences, and. He told me this is astonishing. This is that is an industry that is worth seventy billion pounds to the United Kingdom economy. Seventy billion, and if you think, I mean, we have a we are a wonderful. We, one of the reasons that the economy sort of crashed by to twenty percent in the last quarter is because we have this extraordinary service based economy. You know, obviously financial services, but but hospitality and events yeah. and water and all these things, and not only in this country where it's seventy billion, but also seven hundred thousand people uh, are affected by this. And this mm. is, you know, 
not the performers. This is the sound engineers. This is the tech, you know, the, the tech guys, the, the the waiters, you know, the the cooks, the chefs. If you imagine something like, you know, imagine Park Lane on a Thursday evening in November, where you've got events at the Hilton and the Grosvenor House, and always, and you know, hundreds of technicians involved, hundreds of you know, thousands of, of waiters. Um, all these people doing that, and th- that's kind of been wiped out. And even though they're trying to do some more hybrid uh, productions, where you know there are there might be some on the site. I mean, take the the, the Hilton Ballroom; that's about nine hundred people uh, on a good night. Um, now they have to cut that down to instead of ten to a table, five to a table, so they can distance amongst themselves at the table and then the tables have to be distanced again so it's like you know it's distance squared almost and you get down mm. a room that should should house 900 people with 250 or 300 people as i say this isn't special pleading on behalf of you know the uh, the, the right of corporate britain to go and have a great piss up and, and although you know that there's an element of that but it is all our, our technicians, the people who make that happen. And it is, of course, it's an industry that we're so good at. We do we export around the world. A lot of the, the Olympic opening ceremonies around the world and these sort of things and the great events. Yeah. The British expertise and technical know-how and, you know, the lighting guys and the sound guys. And we're, we're brilliant at it. And we're suffering from the fact that that is, as people famously said last week when they red-lit uh, these theatres and buildings in London. You know, this, this is almost the first industry to shut down, and it will be the last one. The to last open. to open. Yeah. On on a more um, personal level, you've been very open about, um, you know, your ADHD diagnosis as an adult, and also struggling with depression. Occasionally, you've described it, I think, as a black dog, haven't you? That you've that that you've trained it to walk beside you rather than jump on top of you has the has the dog been behaving how how has lockdown been for you uh no by and large actually it's been it's been pretty good i mean i often think you know most people that i know and admire respect have their dark moments where you know where despair i think i mean i i think people talk about depression but i think that combination of despair and frustration can become overwhelming but that's i'm I'm pleased to say that hasn't kind of set in this time the adhd part of it is really as you i've once or twice in this interview i've kind of lost concentration because i i followed a particular uh, um, alley that I was going down and uh, kind of contradict not contradicted myself I kind of led myself astray and then couldn't mm. back, get back to the point that's a very ADHD thing I was doing a program just to talk specifically about ADHD I was doing Richard Osman's House of Games the other day as I got home I really enjoyed it really it was it, it was great fun a great panel of Maisie Adam and uh, James Cracknell Michelle Gale and the wonderful Richard Osman and I realized that mistakes I'd made which was sort of there were two or three catastrophic and very embarrassing errors and they was because I was being impetuous and the key things about ADHD is firstly okay it affects sort of one in 20 they think but that's a conservative estimate so half a million school children because it tends to become, it tends to be more uh, more prevalent in in children, and yeah. sometimes you know it can it can alleviate over the years, and some or sometimes it's a life condition that lasts all, all your life. But the kind of symptoms are um, 
irrepressibility, um, impetuosity, a, a short attention span, um, a kind of restlessness, really. Um, but also, uh, with that also, you do have a hyper-focus. Uh, you where if there's something that really grabs your attention, you can focus on it so intensely. Yeah, you can become obsessive, yeah. almost. Absolutely. Um, so, but during a, uh, during a pandemic, um, I think, yes, I mean, I read on, there's a sort of Additude uh, magazine and I read lots of things about how, um, you know, when you're, if you're, it's one one thing to be where I am in sort of rural Oxfordshire and on my own, but if you have maybe two ch- ADHD children in your family and you're living in a, uh, a tower block, you know, or an inner city apartment, um, and you know you haven't got the space, but people aren't allowed to leave the house. I mean, that it's an incredibly, it's a volcanically uh, intense atmosphere. That, uh, and I just, I just say to people who have ADHD, who have experience of it, is is that somehow the, it's going to sound a bit hippieish again, but it, you you have to have boundless and unconditional love and understanding um because if you are are constantly beating up on a kid who's uh yet again he's forgotten his homework yet again he's he's uh not uh, forgotten to do something he's supposed to do yet again he's been uh distracted and uh, done repeated a mistake that he's been repeated so many times before. If you give him a hard time or her a hard time, they're doing it themselves already. They're already beating themselves up for why did I do that again? Why did I make that mistake again? Why have I got myself into this position again? And I talked to somebody um, about how their daughter had gone through university and had a child and done really well. I said, how did you cope with a child who had ADHD? And he said, you know what? He said, "We we just loved her. My advice is if you have ADHD, um, and there are many, many in our profession, I said to our agent um, the other day, my agent, uh, you know, how many of our cl- of your clients do you think have ADHD? And she said, I should think most of them. Uh, and you get the genius of people like Ross Noble, the genius of a Ross Noble or a Lee Mack is their incredible speed of thought. And part of that, I'm convinced, is because one of the facets of ADHD is that you don't have that filter. That ADHD, the part of your brain that regulates impulsivity, okay, that stops you from being impetuous, that stops you from blurting out, is in ADHD, in the ADHD brain, that that network, that part of the brain is not functioning properly so you just blurt out or you are impetuous or you are impulsive and for a comedian you know a thought comes into your head boom out it comes yeah 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 need of thought so so there are many advantages so i just say to people who have adhd um you know it is it it will be your best friend and your worst enemy your worst enemy because nobody likes to be disorganized or drop the ball or take on too much but on the other hand you know you have got a brain that will dance around all over the place you and, and increasingly um this is the kind of practical part of this i think companies are starting to learn much more about recruiting people who are neurodiverse Finally, what what are you working on at the moment? What current or future project is firing you up? Well, I, gradually, I'm sort of, I'm sort of my part of my brain is sort of slightly furloughed at the moment. But I, I hear that spitting image is coming back. I'm not involved with that. I, I wonder what it's going to be like. You know, I wonder if it because spitting image, not least of the uh, what made it so good with John Lloyd, the producer, and, and the intelligence behind it and the writing behind it. And I just mm. wonder 
if the new version will be, you know, if it will just be out and out rude um, and scatological and, and, you know, celebrity baiting. They uh, need I, to get on the blower to you right away, I think. Well, no, uh, well, I think I, if, if you really want to know what I want to do, Alex, I want to work with you and there's a, there's a, there's a number of people and I think we need to roll our sleeves up uh, and many of the things we've been talking about. Um, I think we need to, we need to roll our sleeves up and we need to be knocking on doors and saying we need to put a show together which is going to reflect all this, which is going to entertain people, which is going to make them laugh, but which underneath is going to take this on. So I think we need to fight a lot of what's going on with facts, funnily enough. Yes, I, I was chatting to Miata Fanbule uh, the other day and she was saying that what progressive people can do now is we've made huge leaps in understanding actually through mm. this crisis and we need to bank them. We need to be vocal about them and we need to bank them because everyone understands now something they didn't understand a year ago mm. that statutory six sick pay and uh, job seekers allowance is not enough to live on for yeah. instance to give yeah. you an example yeah. we need to jump on that because in two years time that will have been forgotten mm. um and you know there's a number of of things we can do rory you make me forget how miserable i actually am <laughs> i i wish you and all the people in your head the very best <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you. And um, I mean, I think, you know, you inspired me when we first met, I think, in the early days of Brexit. And I read your pieces and I read and I thought, this is a man I want to meet and know. And uh, that has just grown. And uh, I think, you know, we should there. There, is, there are things to be said and there are things to be addressed and we have that humour and we have that curiosity and uh, the sooner we, we get into a room together or virtually um, with as, uh, with a list of others that uh, I I have in my head. Um, yes. That, that is Ave growing. Avengers Assemble. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rory. And um, listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday mornings, with a longer weekly episode featuring a full panel every Wednesday morning. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And please support us, if you can, on the funding platform Patreon, where you can search for the Bunker Podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay socially distant, but emotionally available. This is Alexandro from The Bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>